Only about 8% of the book of John repeats events from the other three Gospels. That means most of John's Gospel is new material. But in John 6, there are two events that are included in that 8%. So the real question is, why did John include these two events? Or maybe better yet, what is it about these events that caused John to include them in the list of rare repeats? We'll take a look at that and more in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 10, Barley Loaves, Wind, and Waves. This is part one of two episodes that we'll have for John 6, and I'd just like to start by talking about the relationship that John has with the other Gospels. I covered a lot more of this in the John Bible study that's available at RethinkingScripture.com. But I wanted to just hit a few of the points to kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about in this first episode in John 6. So in John, different than the other gospel narratives, there's like no birth story. Um, We see that in some of the other gospels. There's no temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We see that in all the other gospels, or at least mentioned in all the other gospels. John doesn't have any casting out of demons, which is pretty common in the other Gospels. There's also no parables. So we will read in other places that Jesus is like a good shepherd or a true vine. And most commentaries treat those more like metaphors than parables. And we'll talk about that when we get to there. There's no Olivet Discourse uh, outlining the destruction of Jerusalem in John's Gospel. And even though there are four chapters in the book of John dedicated to the upper room, There's no institution of the Last Supper. The bread is his body and wine is his blood. Metaphors there. John doesn't cover the ascension into heaven of Jesus. Most of his gospel is located in Jerusalem instead of Galilee. And as we've already talked about, the cleansing of the temple appears at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Others have it at the end. So for these reasons, and some other ones that I didn't mention, John is often set aside as a different type of gospel. The other three are called synoptic gospels. Uh, synoptic, like a synonym. They, they tell a similar story. John is radically different. So why is John so different? Most people think that John was the last book written, so the other gospels would have already been in circulation, and those stories would have you know, started to be told over and over again in different settings. So it's likely that John wants to bring a supplement to the other letters. The people that really study the Gospels well, they some of them have gotten together and kind of estimated the number of days that are represented in Jesus's ministry within all four Gospels. I may have mentioned this in a previous episode, I don't remember, but some estimates have that there are only 39 different days recorded in the Gospels. 39 days. And most people think that Jesus's ministry was likely about three years long. There are estimates on both sides of that, longer, shorter. But assuming it was, let's say, three years long, to only have 39 different days recorded suggests that even when John approaches his gospel, there's a lot of Jesus's ministry that has not yet been told. And so as the last gospel written, John probably comes to this task hoping to fill in some of the gaps. There's only a few things that are included in all four Gospels. I already mentioned the feeding of the 5,000 being one of those, the death and resurrection of Jesus being the other major event that's included. And really, those are the only two things that all four Gospels have that they share together. So I'll try and answer as best I can as we move through this chapter. 
why it is that John might have included these two events in his gospel, not only just in his gospel, but back to back here in chapter six. The feeding of the 5,000 story isn't just special to me because it's in all four gospels. It has a special meaning because when I was little in grade school, I was in a musical at my church called The Boy Who Caught the Fish. And those of you that grew up in the 70s and 80s may have been a part of something like that at your church. I'll put in the show notes a link to a YouTube video that has the entire musical written by Jack Coleman. My only point of contention with the story is that it suggests that the boy was fishing for trout. And I think that's mostly because it rhymes with shout that they use later in the song. There was a boy who loved to fish. He always loved to fish for trout. And every time he caught those fish, he bragged and boasted and yelled and shout. But it likely wasn't that he was fishing for trout in the Sea of Galilee. So yeah, there's lots of significance of this story in my memory bank. This account is found, as I mentioned, in all of the other Gospels. Uh, If you were to read all of those other accounts, there are some small details that each Gospel brings to the table that others have slight differences in. Uh, Maybe it's how the conversation went, like who asked the questions or who answers the questions. Those are kind of fun to go read through the different accounts and notice all the differences. But there are some other things that I'd like to point out that I noticed. The first here is in John 6, 4. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So the Passover was attached to a festival out of Leviticus 23. It was a first fruits festival, and it was attached to the barley harvest. So barley is the first grain to ripen in the field in the Holy Land. Wheat Another grain that grew ripened about a month or two later, and that was associated with Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. So I think it's consistent that this boy, it actually mentions that when he brings forth his bread, that they are barley loaves in his lunch instead of like whole wheat loaves or Wonder Bread or something like that. And there's also an important tie because later in this chapter, Jesus is going to play on the bread theme. He's going to say that he is the bread of life. So he's feeding the people bread now, and then he's going to say that he is a type of bread. And eventually, Jesus becomes the bread which is broken, and his body is offered at Passover in Jerusalem. So so at least in one sense, it could be said that Jesus is the ultimate barley loaf. And it makes me wonder why we haven't seen like churches that incorporate this into their name. We have so many different names for churches. Like uh, I would expect somebody to have started the Barley Loaf Fellowship or something like Brethren of the Barley Loaf or maybe First Church of the Barley Loaf. I think that's one I'd like to go to. So as we look at this feeding of the 5,000, one of the ideas is that Jesus is bringing bread to the people and then he's going to play off on that later in this very same chapter. John is going to use this then, this story, and repeat it from the other Gospels because it plays into a theme that he's going to develop further on in one of Jesus' statements. 
The second thing I always like to mention when I teach out of John chapter 6, and this specifically this story, is in John 6.10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. This is out of the NASB. And then it says, now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And that's important also to mention that the 5,000 number likely is just the men here, as mentioned in this verse. And so if you add women and children in addition to that, it's likely a much larger crowd than the 5,000 would suggest. So when Jesus is collecting this crowd, Jesus has the people sit down, is what it says. And then John mentions that there was much grass in the place. And it's interesting, the Greek word for sit might be better understood or better translated as recline or to lie down. So it was springtime. The grass would have been very green at that time of year in the Holy Land. And John is pointing that out. Jesus said, have the people lie down or recline. And John is making a point that Jesus made them lie down in green pastures. And I might be reading a little bit into that, but let me back it up a little bit. Obviously, when I said that Jesus made them lie down in green pastures, if you're well-versed in your Bible or you've been to church one day in your life at all, that might kind of rouse up Psalm 23 in the back of your head where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So if that sounds familiar at all, I don't think that's by chance that John wrote it that way. And the other thing that backs it up is we haven't gotten there yet, but in John chapter 10, John spends nearly a whole chapter on the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd and what that means to be a good shepherd. And here, I think, before that discourse in John 10, John is giving us a picture of Jesus actually being a good shepherd, that he causes his flock to recline on green pastures, and he makes sure that he has them fed. That's what we see in the feeding of the 5,000. I don't believe it's too far of a stretch to include that concept in what John is saying in verse 10 of chapter 6. We will see that the development of this shepherd motif is especially important to John when he quotes Jesus saying things like, I am the good shepherd and I am the door of the sheep in John 10. So I believe the introduction of these bread and shepherd motifs are maybe just one reason why the feeding of the 5,000 survived as part of that 8% in John's gospel. Not only did it happen, but it was important thematically for John to bring this story in to highlight some biblical truths about who Jesus is and what his ministry is that will be highlighted later in this chapter for the bread and in chapter 10 for the shepherd. I also like to point out the cast of characters. In chapter 6, verse 2, and again in chapter 6, verse 5, the crowd is mentioned. So there's a large crowd that come to Jesus. They're also referred to as the people, if you scroll down to 614, when the people saw the sign. The other, in the cast of characters, the other group is the disciples. They're mentioned in John 6, 3, John 6, 7, verse 8, and again in verse 12. So you've got this large crowd of people and the disciples, and they are separated, at least linguistically in the story, they're separated is not the same. That's important, not necessarily for the rest of our episode here today, but for the next episode when we dive into the last half of John chapter 6. It'll be important to understand who the cast of characters are, who it is Jesus is talking to, and what their theological makeup might have been. That's what I'd like to cover regarding the feeding of the 5,000. The next thing in John's gospel 
Chapter 6, verses 15 through 25, records Jesus' walking on the water. So just as a reminder, Matthew and Mark include this event in their gospel. And so the question that we're trying to answer today is, so why is it that we find it here in John's gospel? There's got to be a reason. And like the feeding of the 5,000 example that we just gave, I would suggest to you that the reason is theme-related. We already kind of talked about this in the last episode of the podcast, that there's a water theme throughout the first several books of John's gospel. It's a water motif in the gospel that started back in the first chapter, continues pretty steadily through chapter 7, and then continues on into the end of the gospel. But I also think there's another subplot going on here. It says the disciples push out to sea and got caught up in a strong wind that was blowing. That's in 618. So John goes out of his way to include an episode about water and wind. And for those of you that have been following the podcast, that might sound somewhat familiar. The wind in this story kind of stirs up memories of a conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. That was back in John 3, 5 through 8. And if you remember, let's just turn there real quick. It says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Good to maybe go visit that episode again, because I suggested back in that episode, we could read this as, unless one is born of water and the wind, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Because the word for spirit and the word for wind in the Greek is the exact same word. So it's a translational choice to make that spirit in our English translations. And there may be a double meaning going on, obviously. But here you have the disciples in chapter 6, verse 18, going out on water that is described as being stirred up by a strong wind that was blowing. Remember back with Nicodemus? The wind blows and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is of everyone who is born of the wind. And do you remember the riddle that Jesus solved in chapter 3, verse 13? Again, if you haven't listened to episodes 5 and 6, it'd be totally worth going back because there's a lot of information covered there about water and wind. One of the things I pointed out in the previous episodes is that Jesus is actually answering a riddle out of the Old Testament in John chapter 3. In verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And that's right, it's a riddle from Proverbs 30, verse 4, about who has ascended into heaven and descended, who has gathered the wind into his fists, who has wrapped the waters in his garment. What's his name again? What's his son's name? Surely you know. That's the riddle out of Proverbs 30, verse 4. And in a similar way that Jesus feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6, and then the theology of Jesus as the Good Shepherd is presented in chapter 10, it's likely that here we've gone in reverse order. So we have the theology of Jesus being the answer to the riddle in chapter 3, and now we have the practical implication of what that means. And what does it mean? It means that when they're three to four miles out in the middle of the lake, Jesus started walking on the water and he drew near to the boat and they were frightened. Of course they were. (laughs) And he said, it is I, do not be afraid. 
So the riddle is, who has gathered the wind in his fists and who has wrapped the waters in his garment? My suggestion is here in chapter six, what we get to see is a picture of that actually happening in Jesus's ministry. He is actually gathering the wind in his fists and he is wrapping the waters in his garment. And that literally is what's happening here in chapter six. They received him in the boat and it says immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So I'm just going to suggest to you that the riddle Jesus answers for Nicodemus in a confusing conversation in John 3, he is answering specifically for his disciples through this windy and watery episode on the Sea of Galilee. After this episode, would there be any doubt who it is that has gathered the wind in his fists and who has wrapped the waters in his garment? And John decides to pass that along to his readership, and we become the beneficiaries of the event as well. And there's a confirmation coming up at the end of chapter 6 that even ties this maybe a little more closely in. It's a connection found in verses 62 and 63. It's after Jesus talks about being the bread that came down from heaven. He says, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He uses that Son of Man language, and he uses the ascending language. That's the answer to the riddle in John chapter 3. And he's tying it all together for his disciples in a different way than he did for Nicodemus. So I believe this story made the 8%, at least in part, to answer the wind and water riddle for the 12 disciples. Then the text says that the crowd that had been with Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000 noticed that he was no longer with them. And that crowd followed him to Capernaum. And there Jesus had a lengthy and theologically deep discourse with them. And (laughs) it's a hotbed of controversy in our modern context. I mean, it would have been controversial in Jesus's context. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. But in our context, in our culture, we've made this into a dramatically different controversy. And depending on your theology, you may already have a framework into which you read this passage. And if you haven't read this passage or studied it very much, it may just be a confusing conversation that Jesus has that doesn't make much sense. But we're going to tackle the text in the next episode. But before we do that, I'd like to give examples of what I'll be asking you to do with the remainder of chapter 6. It has to do with the ability to rethink Scripture. And if you remember the quote of Adam Grant that I gave in episode 1, that sometimes our intelligence is linked in our modern culture to our ability to unlearn and rethink new things. And this is going to be a great example of that, especially if you think you know what the end of chapter 6 already says. The first example I'm going to give is picture illusions. And one of my favorites that I used to use when I was teaching middle school English, it's called my wife and my mother-in-law. You may not know it by that name. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for those of you that have never seen this. But my guess is that many of you have. It was produced by William Hill, an American cartoonist, but it was published under the title My Wife and My Mother-in-Law in 1915. And it was with the caption, they're both in this picture, find them. And if you've ever seen this picture, you either see an older lady with a big nose or you see a young lady. It was really interesting when I used this in junior high. I would just put it up on the overhead. That's 
back when we used overheads. <laughs> I would put this up on the overhead. It would display under the screen in front of the classroom. I would just simply ask the students to write down and describe what they see in, in complete silence. So nobody was talking, nobody gave up anything. And I just put the picture up and students would start to write what they saw. And I give them like three or four minutes because that's about the length of time that junior high students can actually concentrate. And then I would just take volunteers. And I just said, can you read to the class how you've described what you see? And inevitably, the kid would read and it'd either be a description of a young lady or an old lady. And about half the class would go, yeah, that's exactly. The other half of the class would say, what are you talking about? That's not at all. And I said, oh, what do you see? How did you describe it? And it was kind of fun. And then my job as a teacher then was to teach one half of the class the part of the picture that they're not seeing and do the same for the other half. So that by the end of the lesson, my goal was for each student to be able to see both pictures, the young lady and the old lady. And then like a good writing teacher, I closed with, now describe what you see now that you can see both. And as I got into studying the Bible, it dawned on me that that wasn't true just for that one picture, but it's true oftentimes of how we read the Bible. Oftentimes we come to a passage and we see one thing because that's what we are inclined to see, or maybe somebody told us to see it that way and trained us to see it that way first. And yet sometimes there's a whole nother picture there that we're missing, and it just depends on perspective. So that's my first example. The other example I'd like to bring up is another type of funny thing that happens with our eyes. This is the way I searched Google. I said, what is the thing called where you have to make your eyes fuzzy to see the hidden picture? That's what I Googled. <laughs> Some of you already know what I'm talking about. And I came to find out it's called an auto stereogram. And I'll just read from the Wikipedia article. An auto stereogram is a single image stereogram designed to create the visual illusion of a three-dimensional scene from a two-dimensional image. In order to perceive 3D shapes, one must overcome the normal automatic coordination between the accommodation, the focus, and the angle of one's eyes. So these are the types of pictures that were made well known in the book called Magic Eye. To be honest with you, they drove me crazy at first because, you know, somebody says, oh, look at this picture. And I'm like, okay, it's just, it's really pretty, I guess. And they say, no, you, you got to change the focus of your eyes. And I'm like, okay. And then literally 10 minutes later, I'm like, I don't see anything. And they said, well, put it up close to your face. And eventually, for those of you that have seen these, it's amazing. I mean, because this random page that looks like nothing just sort of molds into a 3D picture. And usually there's like a picture of a shark or a saying, or a word or something that magically appears in 3D. These things drive me crazy, but I've gotten better at it. I've gotten better. Now I can pick up one of these, get it kind of close to my face. I kind of remember how it is that I look at these and see the three-dimensional objects. And I just sort of let my eyes do their thing because I've learned how to look at these auto stereograms. And this is the second way that I'd like to just sort of illustrate what I'm going to be challenging you to do in the next episode. So some of you are coming to John chapter six, the last part of it, especially the bread of life discourse, and you, you've come to it and you, you think you already know the picture. And my job is going to be in the next episode to try and show you a different picture that's already there that maybe you can't see because of whatever reason. Maybe it's a teacher that you had or a theology that you hold to that wouldn't have been readily apparent to those in the first century context. 
And maybe you don't know anything about the end of John chapter 6, and it'll be the first time you hear anybody talk about it. And if you were to read through, maybe you're just looking at a two-dimensional picture that doesn't really seem to have much going for it. And my job for you will be to try and train your eyes and see what might pop out and surprise you. Either way, I'm hoping that you come away with the ability to see more than just one way to look at the end of John chapter 6, the Bread of Life discourse. Well, that's it for today. But before we go, let me just ask a question. Who do you know that would benefit and be challenged by the topics that we've covered today? I would invite you to tell a friend about what you're learning, have conversations with them, and encourage a deeper discussion about what we need to rethink and relearn about God's Word. The first century context of the Bread of Life discourse has been eclipsed by our modern theological squabbles. And in the next episode, we'll set those systems aside. We'll dive back into the original context and rethink what the Bread of Life discourse is all about. I invite you to read through John 6, 26 through 71 and see what type of picture emerges for you. And then we'll talk about it next time on the Rethinking Scripture podcast. <laughs>